Okay. So we didn't we didn't talk very explicitly in that last session in the feedback about the um, the head heart hands uh, grid, uh, but I see from the way you filled out some of them that um, hopefully you started seeing how that applies at that level uh, as well. Um, and again, you can work from what the filmmaker shows us and how through to you were working out well what are their attitudes that they're trying to get us to uh, to to feel to respond uh, to their film and what are their uh, underlying beliefs they say about. Um, the nature of human beings, uh, the nature of value, uh, and so on. So a bit of a tangent now, though sticking uh, in the realm of uh, cinematography, uh, and going with uh, the theme of monsters, and looking a bit about how uh, one might uh, take a tack of relating uh, the gospel uh, to contemporary popular culture by talking and thinking about monsters. Uh, so, uh, just uh, as an example of one of the ways uh, in which um, we can uh, fruitfully use contemporary popular culture uh, in the church, uh, in uh, evangelism and making disciples and so on, uh, and that the church often, of course, has a reputation of uh, taking a sort of anti-cultural stance, you know, uh, cinema, boo, that's bad, it has, you know, sex and violence in it, and uh, we're again it. Uh, well, you know, okay, we do need to, of course, uh, be uh, sensible about these things, but um, humanity created in the image of God has this inbuilt creativity uh, and spiritual hunger uh, for spirituality, that expresses itself uh, in the arts. And just as humans are wonderful things made in the image of God who are fallen and do terrible stuff, uh, so one would expect the world of the arts to reflect that, that there would be wonderful things in there that reflect the image of God and that there would be terrible stuff in there uh, as well. It's no different uh, from you or I or any other uh, sphere of human activity. So, um, as a philosopher, uh, you may have worked out by now, I get excited by definitions. I think they're really useful. Uh, we started off with a definition of spirituality. Here's a definition of, of monster. But what is uh, a monster? Well, uh, the word monster has, has Latin uh, roots. Uh, forgive my pronunciation, but monstrum means that which teaches. <laughs> Monstrere means to show. Monier means to warn. So this theme of teaching, of showing, of warning is obvious when you think about the, the English word demonstrate. Let me demonstrate this to the class, the science teacher uh, may say. Despite his name, uh, the cookie monster here, I suggest, uh, is not a monster in the, at least not in the technical sense of the word, <laughs> that is uh, interesting from a film critic point of view. Uh, it is a, a, a misnomer. And there is indeed an important distinction, I think, between a monster and something that is simply a dangerous X, a dangerous whatever, a dangerous person, a dangerous animal, alien, creature, what have you. On the top left here, we have a still 
of a man who recently went AWOL in an army base with a shotgun, killing people. His actions were monstrous, we might say. But he is not a monster, however many newspaper headlines may describe him as such. He is a human being. At the bottom left, we have the film poster for the original uh, Gregory Peck version of Moby Dick. Uh, the novel by Mervyn uh, uh, Melville. Now, in Moby Dick, there is a monstrously large whale creature who is very dangerous. But the monster in Moby Dick is not the whale. It's Captain Ahab. Despite the fact that he is a person, this is a literary creation that comes to represent humanity's lust for revenge. He is the lust for revenge incarnate, you might say. And he is the monster. Well, at the top right here, we have uh, Anthony Hopkins playing the serial killer <laughs> from Silence of the Lambs. And again, he comes to, to stand for, to be an image of evil, despite being a person. And at the bottom, the, the shark endures. I think, again, the way in which it's used in the film becomes kind of a, an icon, if you like, of evil. And particularly the way in which it stalks our protagonists in a, in a most un shark-like way, I think. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, the, the cleverest shark ever um, <laughs> in Jaws. Um, occasionally we still do hear stories of people having their leg bitten off or whatever by a shark as they swim too close to shark waters in particular bits of Australia or what have you. Um, but sharks generally don't go for people. They just mistake them for seals or, uh, or what have you. Um, the, the shark in Jaws definitely seems to have it in <laughs> for our crew. Um, so there's something in a monster that's more than just being a dangerous whatever. There's something about it being sort of iconographic of evil, or symbolic or representational of evil in some way. Here's my uh, attempted definition of a monster. A monster is a human invention that symbolizes and so warns us about evil. Most especially our own capacity for evil. And which therefore, uh, thereby demonstrates our need to be saved. Now, already, when you start thinking about you know, what function do monsters play in film and literature and so on, and you start getting, honing in on that kind of definition, you will start seeing how you might connect that to the gospel and to the biblical worldview. So, monsters are ways to confront real or possible evils. We kind of externalise our evil into this representation of evil that we can there thereby confront and this is what I jokingly call William's law of monstrousness 
Um, I reckon that the more monstrous the evil and the more successfully a monster incarnates or symbolizes that evil, the scarier it is. And, and monsters are scary in a way that, oh, a dangerous ex that's got sharp teeth and might use them on me isn't. <coughs> so Top Gear have their cool wall of cars. <laughs> I have my scary wall of monsters. Uh, sliding scale through from mildly scary, use certificate monster. Uh, you know, monster contains mild peril. <laughs> as the use certificate sometimes says, uh, through to, uh, blimey, that's terrifying, it gave me nightmares. I don't want to stay up without the light on, on my own. <laughs> uh, uh, Robot Maria from 1927, when uh, the <laughs> Rotvang, the scientist, uh, produces his robot that then copies Maria and he sends it off to do dastardly things, pretending that it's her and thus subverting her message of peace between the workers and the oligarchy. Uh, is quite scary, I think. She represents the breakdown of society, the potential for society to collapse in upon itself into anarchy. She also, uh, symbols in the film are used uh, from the Bible about the whore of Babylon uh, that she symbolizes as well. Um, now, when you're watching, particularly an old-fashioned film... It's a bit like reading an old-fashioned text. And of course, in the art of reading the Bible properly, or hermeneutics, as people who like long words call it, um, you'll learn about the importance of reading a text in the context of its original culture. And I think it's a bit like that with watching films. Um, we have to make a, a sort of mental effort to view a film in the context of its original culture and to be lenient towards the fact that filmmaking technology, in particular, has moved on since days of yore. Um, so with that in mind, if you're an audience member in 1927, you have never seen anything as spooky as this. Uh, it's all in the inhumanly slow pace at which she stands up. And starts moving, I think. And of course, bringing to mind reminiscence of uh, Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein, the old scientist creates humanoid figure, trope, etc., etc., is being played with there. Um, even today, I think at least mildly scary. Um, let me talk a little bit more at length about the, uh, the, the beast from the id, from the first A-feature science fiction film, from 1956, The Forbidden Planet, uh, a film which took uh, the plot of Shakespeare's play The Tempest and transposed it into the science fiction genre. Uh, humans in a flying saucer. Oh, what an interesting idea in 1956 at the height of the UFO craze. It's humans who are out in the galaxy in their flying saucer spaceships uh, come uh, to the planet uh, Altair to check up on an expedition who they find have all been killed except for uh, Dr. Um, Morbius and his daughter. But they find them living in the lap of luxury 
uh, with a robot that certainly wasn't on the original crew manifesto. This is a very famous early sci-fi robot, Robbie the Robot, and his daughter. Not the robot's daughter, but Morpheus's daughter. <laughs> who uh, reveals to them eventually that uh, this planet had been uh, the home planet of an immense alien civilization long since deceased, whose uh, civilization seemed to pass away in the blink of an eye, leaving only uh, these monstrously huge underground machines. It's an interview from monstrously huge underground machines. Um, and he uh, shows an example of what he thinks is a, a brain trainer. You put these uh, diodes on your head and you think about something. And uh, the machine provides some energy and uh, a little 3D hologram, a little 3D figure of what you're thinking about appears and moves as you think about it moving and so on. And he shows them the, the underground nuclear bunkers providing energy uh, for the machines and uh, how little energy on the dials. And they have these wonderful series of those, you know, dials that do this. That's 1950s sci-fi for you. Arranged around the room in powers of ten. It says, this, uh, doing this takes a little bit of energy. Imagine what this machine could do. And here as they are exploring the underground scenes in some... Uh, Wonderful early uh, hanging miniature glass shots and so on. Still quite impressive today. It stars Leslie Nielsen as the starship captain in his days uh, before he turned to comic acting and police squad and aeroplane and all of that. Uh, and Leslie Nielsen, uh, the starship captain and the daughter, fall in love. And what's going on there with my clip? Is it going to work? It ought to. I know what I can do. I can just come out and show you the clip. What happens is that uh, strange events start happening around the, the spaceship at night. Bits of equipment go missing. Crew members start getting murdered in situations where they couldn't possibly be. And uh, we see this uh, strange invisible uh, creature prowling around the spaceship because we see just the footprints appearing uh, in the sand. <laughs> and uh, then one night, as it becomes clear that the starship captain and uh, Morbius's daughter are falling in love, the starship is attacked by the famous beast from the id, which hopefully will play directly into my screen now. Yes, here we go. So... Yeah, so somehow that, that shot of him, with, particularly with the little pistol going, choo, 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 always gets a laugh out of audiences. Um, <laughs> but as I say, cutting edge, you know, think of the last film with big special effects that you went to see that made your jaw drop, you know, Godzilla, the recent version, or uh, whatever. In 60 years' time, do you think people will watch that film that you just saw and go, good grief, how did you find that scary? You know, that's so unrealistic, you know. Didn't even smell of anything. Um, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> They're there, they, uh, they hired animators from Disney. It was uh, the, the strange music that we had. And that was the first ever entirely electronic score for a movie. Um, 
and the Academy refused to enter it for the Oscars because it wasn't a musical score. Because it was made on these electronic things. You've just had the electronics do it for you, haven't you? Well, then proper musicians, you know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it's an interesting phase of film history as well. Uh, anyway, uh, heading uh, back to Morbius, who woke up there, and you can see how many dials of his <laughs> wonderful uh, machine were lit up. Uh, they work out, they work out, they, they say to, to Morbius, actually, you're too close to the problem. We've realised what's going on here. You've got a machine that creates things out of thought. But what if it is feeding off your unconscious thoughts? So he was asleep, the monster attacked, his daughter screamed, he woke up, the monster disappeared. And there's this phrase that monsters from the id, you know, Freudian psychology being all the rage at the time. Um, sort of monsters from your unconscious animalistic urges and it's the fact that Morbius is jealous of the starship captain's relationship with his daughter and he doesn't want his daughter to leave that his unconscious thoughts are becoming manifested by this alien technology and they realise that must be what killed off the aliens they'd got to this hugely advanced civilization. They got to the point where they were going to be able to do anything just by thinking about it, but they didn't take into account the fact that they still had their, their primal, animalistic, evil selves within them, as it were. And as they huddle in Morbis's uh, laboratory here, deep underground, the monster from the id starts melting its way through a very impressive sci-fi door that's, you know, all weird angles and has lots of things that do this, like the beginning of Get Smart, if you remember that. <laughs> it's melting its way through the door, and Starship Captain is saying, Morbius, Morbius, that's your other self outside that door. That's you. You've, you only you can stop it. And Morbius is saying, I, 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 it's, it's not my conscious self. How can I stop it? What can I do? I renounce you. I renounce you. And he rushes up to the door, and we cut away, and we see... The reaction shot, you know. And the monster from the id kills its creator and, of course, therefore disappears. So it's not too much of a stretch from there to talking about the need to die to self, <laughs> uh, the need for a renewal of what is in the human despite you know, all the promises of civilization and that science and human evolution and so on will, will perfect us, well, it didn't help the alien civilization, but there is something within humanity that needs to be fought against and that we are powerless on our own, as it were, just to be free from. Um, despite the 1950s technology, quite scary, I think. Fantastic, isn't it? The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms with the stop frame animation from the famous Ray Harryhausen, uh, of course. Uh, a film which inspired uh, the Japanese to go on to make Godzilla. Uh, they didn't quite have the, the money to do stop frame animation, so they put a guy in a rubber suit instead and put him in some big models and uh, stomp around. Um, but notice what's, what's the real fear here. I mean, this isn't, 
just a creature that is dangerous because, ooh, it's big and it's got sharp teeth and it's coming after me. There's a context to the scariness for the original audience, at least. Boom. Mushroom cloud. Nuclear technology. Man's advancing scientific knowledge. Outstripping our wisdom to use it. Coming back to bite us in the backside. And of course, when the Japanese take the idea of the monster trashing city movie, the Japanese, who within that generation had had two cities wiped out by nuclear bombs, they turn the monster Gojira into the living incarnation of a nuclear attack upon Tokyo with its radioactive breath and so on. And the scenes of the suffering of the public of Tokyo under the onslaught of Godzilla is saying something very powerful in its societal context about nuclear warfare. As indeed is a certain British sci-fi series that began a year after the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, where once again the world came as close to nuclear warfare as it ever probably has. 1963, Doctor Who begins on British television. The second story introduces the Daleks. Uh, the Doctor and his companions land on this apparently desolate planet and explore an apparently empty city. I particularly love the fact that the Daleks Geiger counter <laughs> has on it a little white sticky label with Geiger counter written on it. <laughs> I, I don't know what Dalek plunger attachment was used to, to, to do that. That's, I've always wondered. Um, but here, anyway, let's see the scene building up to the first introduction uh, of uh, the Daleks on British telly. And it's a wonderful design for the time because, um, you know, for all that, uh, Maria in her, you know, uh, sort of uh, Art Nouveau splendor, here we have, uh, on a television budget, a monster that does not look like a human being. And which, at least on first glass, you think, how would they even fit a person in there? Like, where's the, where are the arms? Go? You know, it's, it's inhuman in its uh, design aesthetic. Thank you. <laughs> hmm. uh, that story was made into a film in glorious colour so you can see it in colour at the cinema in uh, 1965 and there was a, a better but less successful follow up uh, of uh, the Dalek invasion of Earth later on as well I particularly like the fact since this is the 1960s mid 60s you do have to notice the Daleks are in on the whole groovy Dalek lava lamp business <laughs> because that makes it look <coughs> hip in the Dalek base. <laughs> it's just incongruous that Daleks would have lava lamps on uh, the planet Skyro. Now, okay, the, again, there's, there's obviously there's a contextual background there about nuclear warfare that the Daleks are being used to talk about and to symbolise, that gives them a scariness, 
in that story for that original audience. Uh, and that changes over time. And if you sample Doctor Who Dalek stories over time, I think you find that the really successful ones are ones that, that recontextualize the Daleks in terms of contemporary fears of the audience, be that fears about, say, genetic engineering um, in the 1980s and so on. So when Doctor Who returned to TV in 2005, and you're thinking, OK, I want to bring back the most iconic monster, um, what shall we have them represent in order to make these things from the 1960s still scary for a tea time audience, at least? What do we fear in 2005? That's right, make the Daleks religious fundamentalists. (laughs) Russell T. Davis, the head writer there, attempting an analysis of radicalisation. The way in which the Daleks take those who don't feel they have a place within society and radicalise them into that which we fear most. That's how you make Daleks scary in 2005. And still relevant now. um, By changing that contextual background. It's what they're representing, what they're being used to talk about that makes them scary, not the fact that they've got a gun that might zap you. So, briefly, we could pick up, I think, um, say, four lessons about evil from Daleks. Um, Evil is real. At least at an intuitive level, when people are watching Doctor Who, again, like John in our first clip, they're not watching Doctor Who as cultural or moral relativists or subjectivists. Um, Doctor Who just wouldn't work as drama if people in watching it didn't buy into the idea of a real difference between good and evil. You know, Nobody is disappointed at the end of a Doctor Who story if the Doctor beats the Daleks. (laughs) Because they were going, oh, I was really rooting for the other side today. After all, you know, it doesn't matter which side you root for because they're just different. (laughs) Different strokes for different folks. I was really rooting for the Dalek side. Evil is real. Since these are monsters... And it's talking about things we fear about humanity. That evil is in us. Evil must be fought. And the literary um, theorists have a whole uh, term of frame of reference about um, the genre of the literature of reassurance, where evil is confronted and overcome. Um, as opposed to um, what you might term sort of nihilistic storytelling, uh, in which evil is depicted and not overcome, or evil is depicted and there are no consequences because of that. Um, But Doctor Who is a literature of reassurance, saying, "Yes, yes, there is real evil, but it must be fought, it can be fought, It can be triumphed over. It can be beaten. 
Now that resonates very much with a biblical worldview in terms of saying that evil is real, that it's in us, that it must be fought against, that it can and indeed will be beaten. And here is a piece of um, media uh, constructed very much by Russell T. Davis, uh, who's the head writer of Doctor Who at that point, uh, who was an atheist. Okay. Quite an outspoken uh, atheist, although he used lots of religious imagery uh, within his portrayal of the Doctor and so on in his series. It's quite interesting. He is an atheist who says humans are incurably religious by nature. He's very happy to, to use religious symbols and so on in his drama. Um, but there is something of, the, of reality and truth in the image of God coming out through the artistic expression of an atheist. Uh, and we as Christians, when engaging with media, I think need to pay particular attention to affirming that which is true and good and beautiful in cultural products, as well as being critical of those things that are false and ugly and evil. So, in this sense, you might say a biblical worldview provides the necessary preconditions of a good drama. <laughs> which is interesting uh, it's interesting particularly if you compare to, to more Asian cinema and what happens uh, when the way of uh, thinking about things in Asian cinema tries to get translated into Western cinema as the, the Wachowski brothers as they were at that time did with the Matrix trilogy um, a trilogy of films that played around a lot with different religious imagery from lots of different worldviews. But at the end of the trilogy, and I hope I'm not giving anything away at this stage to anyone, uh, it's not a case of the humans are the good guys and they defeat the evil bad guys who are the robot computer masters of the enslaving the earth. Rather, what happens at the end of the trilogy is that a new balance, a new arrangement of coexistence is struck. A new arrangement of the yin and the yang is arrived at. And I think a lot of Western audiences didn't like that. Didn't like the, you know, loved the first film. <laughs> didn't like the, the, the sequels so much, because of the, partly because of the way in which it didn't meet audience expectations of Keanu Reeves and his co-conspirator rebels fighting the good fight and beating the robots, because that didn't happen. <coughs> In those literature terms, you could say that the Bible, the biblical storyline, that human history is ultimately a drama of reassurance. Uh, look at Revelation 21 uh, for an affirmation of this. And in terms of needing to be saved from evil... You could say both um, Doctor Who, you could pick other things, but Doctor Who and the Bible, they present us with reassuring saviour figures who save humanity from evil and inspire humanity to fight against evil. It's not an either or, but it's a both and. And particularly if you watch that first 2005 Russell D. Davis series of Doctor Who, it's, it's strikingly notable 
that rarely does the Doctor actually save the day in any of the episodes of that first series. What happens is that someone he meets is inspired to do something that saves the day. And there's a theme about him inspiring other people to be better people and to live a better life, um, as Rose's companion uh, puts it. But it's a both uh, and, of course. It's not a passive, we are saved. Um, Although that's there. Nor is it a work out your salvation by works. Although, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. (laughs) See, it's a both and. This is a very interesting quote to to end up with, a, a quote from Sylvester McCoy, who played Doctor Who number seven of the last Doctor of the, the classic series, and in, uh, was it, 89? And uh, he says this, talking about Doctor Who, in an interview, Sylvester McCoy said, it's the classic story of someone from outside our world coming down to help us. That makes it a very attractive to human beings. And I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but Jesus came down from outside the world to save us, and it's that kind of arena and indeed, that kind of religious imagery of the Doctor was particularly played up, interestingly, by atheist Russell T. Davis in his series of Doctor Who uh, recently, even, even to the point where you had uh, stories with uh, David Tennant's uh, Doctor uh, triumphing over the Master by people basically praying to give him power, which he then used to free himself and to forgive the Master rather than destroy him. Um, fascinating stuff going on in the writings of, of a uh, leading atheist TV writer. So I hope you see there some of the uh, connections that can start to be drawn um, between um, just that one element of contemporary popular culture of thinking about monsters, what they really mean, what they represent, why they're scary for audiences at particular times, um, how we, in engaging with film, think ourselves back into the original context to find out what's going on, just as we, in reading a bit of the, the Bible, need to think a bit about the original culture and context to see uh, what's going on. Uh, the way in which even a piece of popular culture written by an atheist can reflect something of the truth of the biblical worldview that we as Christians can affirm and positively engage with and say, yes, I agree with you, amen, let's build from there. Whilst not forgetting that there are, of course, fallen things in, in, in culture, as in us, uh, that we need to handle carefully and warily. Well, I hope that is useful, and uh, I think I'll stop there and just have a, a little time for any questions anyone may have about any of the material that we've uh, covered uh, this evening. Uh, and uh, when that draws to a close, or we fail to avail ourselves of the opportunity, we will draw up stumps and notice that there are still a few Jaffa cakes left on the table. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you think the, the spirituality in the films shape people's opinions or just reflect them? Ah, interesting. Does the spirituality of films shape or reflect... Um, I think the answer is probably going to be both and. I think it's not an e- uh, one of those either-ors again. Um, 
Some films are much more self-conscious, obviously self-consciously trying to shape their audience in a particular direction. Sometimes a, a, a film, or whatever it is, is trying to at least raise certain issues for an audience to think about, or giving a particular view uh, on on a matter. Um, and I think clearly, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front or Metropolis was giving a certain viewpoint on the matter. You weren't left at the end of those just those clips thinking, oh, I wonder what I wonder what Fritz Lang thinks about <laughs> the value of human beings, or you know. Um, or I wonder what he thinks about whether or not it's a good idea to have a society that's bifurcated between the haves and the have-nots. <laughs> What's his political philosophy like? You know, he was clearly trying to put across his political philosophy in a powerful way uh, to get people thinking uh, about that. Um, other cultural products, less obviously and immediately so. And it might be more a case of them just reflecting um, in, a, in a less thoughtful way popular culture uh, and the, the spirituality of the people who are collaborating on, on, the, on the product. So it's a bit of a non-answer, really. Sorry about that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we have to take these things on a, on a case-by-case basis and just with those few simple tools that we've looked at in the back of our minds... Um, you start to get used to working out what's you know what's being said here, uh, what is being claimed about what's true and what's good and what's beautiful, and do I actually agree? <laughs> How am I being? Uh, am I being you know rhetorically manipulated into a viewpoint and swept along with something that I don't really myself agree with? And what do I think about that? How do I counter that? How do I engage with that? Um, you know, should I buy? Take an advert as an example. I, I do this with students when I show them the the, the Clairol, recent Clairol hair colouring advert. If you've seen it with the woman um, looking at the shoes in the shop, the red shoes in the shoe shop, and the very patrician lady who looks down her nose at her and like, "You're not good enough to buy my shoes in my shoe shop." And then she remembers, "Ah, oh, but I've I've coloured my hair." Today and she walks in, and she buys the shoes, and she strides off all confidently. And you know, and Claire, all you know, be a shade braver is the tagline. Right, <laughs> your life will be revolutionised by using Claire hair colour. Right, well, it's just this little drama, this little soap opera story that's given to you. Absolutely no evidence that Claire hair colouring has a positive psychological effect upon anyone. <laughs> Certainly no contrast between the positive effects of Claire versus Boots own brand hair colouring. You know, <laughs> there's no reasonable evidence or argument given to you in that advert, you are just given a little story that they hope kind of sweeps you along, and that you won't think about it, and then you'll just remember Clairol next time you're you know, in the aisle at the supermarket. Um, Do you think that um, it's true that lots of people in, outside and inside church don't think that about it, what, what their worldview is, and yeah, I think, I guess, I think at least most people think a bit about their worldview and so on, but I think a lot more people could do with thinking more and better about it um, and could, um, could do with turning their brains on when they sit down on the couch to watch television rather than turning it off, as it were. And that actually when you start doing that, there is more 
enjoyment and understanding to be derived from engaging with, with film and media and so on than if you're not thinking about it. Um, so it, it's, better, it's better to be thoughtfully engaging with it rather than unthinkingly being swept along by it, isn't it? Um, and, you know, I think... Uh, the church has, has, in certain parts of its tradition, been very pietistic, as the phrase goes, about culture. And sort of, oh, culture, that's evil, let's not engage with it, let's get into a holy huddle, let's you know, have our own Christian music and Christian books and Christian novels and Christian films, and kind of as a sort of way of putting a bulwark between us and the evils of culture. Um, unless you go and, you know live in a cave somewhere it's very hard to really unplug yourself from the world in that way and then how do you be salt and light in the world if you're unplugging from it um, so you need to uh, in the phrase that's not in the bible but that summarises quite well the biblical teaching I think, be in the world but not of it and that means engaging with it in a, in a thoughtful way worshipping gods with our minds as much as with our attitudes of our hearts and with our actions uh, and the way in which those things uh, integrate to shape who we who we are. Do you think that more modern TV and film actually does make people think, or is it actually people go to distant to mm. films to tradition gaze and to reaffirm preconceived beliefs and thought pattern anyway? Because that's what's going to sell money. So that's what. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the films that, that pander to to popularism. Of course, uh, are gonna be, they're going to be less the sort of art house auteur kind of movie, less the kind of niche genre movies, which are films that are going to probably more explicitly be about thinking of things or about themes or whatever, um, be more concerned to be engaging with a particular issue rather than simply concerned with how can we make the most money out of a particular toy line <laughs> from the 1980s or whatever. Michael Bay, I'm looking at you. Um, <laughs> but everything is made by people with a spirituality that will get reflected in what they do. Um, and even a Transformers movie does communicate something <laughs> about the worldview of the people who makes it and does actually depend for its success. The filmmakers are gambling upon the audience sharing certain elements of their worldview so that the audience doesn't walk out at the end going oh that was really disappointing you know the humans didn't beat the robots at the end Matrix trilogy <laughs> but go yeah good triumphed over evil you know and one can only hope that that, uh, that engagement of people's, uh, at a, even at an emotional, attitudinal level, a sort of gut response level to watching Schindler's List. I mean, gracious me, the first time I, I watched Schindler's List by Steven Spielberg in the cinema when it came out, it was the first time I've ever been in a cinema where the film ended and there was silence in that cinema. It was packed cinema, it was silent, and everyone stayed sitting. For like, it was like there was a spontaneous two minutes of silence and remembrance at the end of that film. Um, now, whether anyone went home 
thinking, hmm, I wonder about the uh, ontological nature of meta-ethics and whether the distinction between good and evil is rooted somehow in some sort of pers- uh, personalistic prime being uh, who grounds the moral law and somehow has something to do with why we know we're obligated to behave in certain ways. And isn't that the moral argument communicated by C.S. Lewis and mere Christ- you know, I'm sure a lot of people didn't do that. <laughs> Although you can go there from there. But I think a lot of people would have been moved to think about the nature of right and wrong, the value of human beings, um, the importance of standing up for what you believe in, uh, thinking about, you know, do we do enough to help our fellow man? Um, never again. Uh, can, could this happen again? Um, and so on, you know. Um, that it will uh, move people and engage people um, in thinking about things even indirectly um, because you know no one is just a walking brain like Mr. Spock pretends to be but isn't <laughs> any more than, than people are just walking bundles of emotions or just behavioural units like the psychologist B.F. Skinner termed them in behaviourism um, we are actually thinking, choosing, feeling, acting beings. And those are intertwined with one another. And you, you can't really do one without the others being there in some way, shape or form. It's just that you may enter an issue at those different levels, um, uh, primarily speaking, but the others will get caught up along with it, I think. Do you think it's the same the other way around, where Asians find maybe Western cinematography quite mm. unengaging or mm. confusing? That is a fascinating question. I, I wish I knew more Asian people that I could ask. Uh, that, that's a sort of fascinating sociological question. Um, yeah, I mean... The, the, could you view it as a sort of repetitive boringness of the fact that, oh, I wonder which side's going to win. It'll be the guys in the white hats, you know. <laughs> I wonder where this story is going. Um, whereas in, in Asian cinema, you can get introduced to and say Spirited Away, the, um, the animated film Spirited Away, wonderful film, um, in, introduced to the witch who runs the bathhouse, and she's really scary as a character. And then you get to know her a bit. And you realise why she's that way. And actually, she's all right, really, deep down. And by the end, the little girl, who's the character that we're following in the film, is calling her grandma. <laughs> because she's come to understand that which was once foreign to her. And so we've, we've, we've brought peace and, and social stability out of potential... Um, uh, sort of a potential for opposition and, and fighting and so on. Uh, and that is much more the sort of Asian cultural outlook. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating thing to, to, thing to ruminate upon, really, and, and, and the role in which the different sort of worldviews play in that, the world way in which a worldview that doesn't really have a distinction between, a real d- objective distinction between good and evil, how does that play out in doing drama? Um, versus a worldview that does have that distinction. 
<laughs> why, why do you think it is that sometimes in films it can be incredibly dissatisfying when at the end of the film mm. everything just works out and is happy mm. and good does triumph over evil? When sometimes you think, oh, I really wish they hadn't won. Would have been like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it, I think it, can, it can be too trite. Yeah. Um, but the triumph of good over evil doesn't come at a sufficient price. Sometimes it's it's too easy, it's too twee, it, 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 it's too Pollyanna, um, the little girl who looks on the bright side of everything, uh, if you've seen that. Um, but there, there is a sense in, in, in which this fight between good and evil, although it's one that will be won is one that does have consequences, uh, and, and eternal consequences. Um, and that um, e- evil is real, and it is really evil, and it is really horrible, and a film uh, or artwork that doesn't face up to that is, is betraying the truth of reality, um, in a way that the, the Bible clearly doesn't. Um, uh, the Bible, uh, someone was saying about All Quiet on the Western Front, show, it tells it as it is about its characters. It says, you know, here's, here's the great King David, the, the template for the Messiah, the greatest king that Israel has ever had, and an adulterous murderer. Hooray! Yeah, that's telling it like it is. <laughs> um, that's not the sort of story you make up about your nation if you're just trying to big yourself up. <laughs> That's realism. Um, uh, that there is uh, there is a struggle and there is a price. Um, yeah. mm. Well, thank you. I hope I've given you plenty uh, to chew on. You could um, print off more of these sheets and things if you want from the from the church here. You could use it as a small group activity. Or uh, keep it in hand next time you come back from the cinema or <laughs> are watching Neighbours or whatever. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be building on this uh, next week, thinking about the world that we're trying to reach with the gospel, but the world that we're part and parcel of. So um, I'll be taking my sheet and photocopying it for Jill for next Sunday's nights of Downton Abbey. Yeah. Yeah.